I'm Dr. Nathaniel Chin, and you're listening to Dementia Matters, a podcast about Alzheimer's disease. Dementia Matters is a production of the Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center. Our goal is to educate listeners on the latest news in Alzheimer's disease research and caregiver strategies. Thanks for joining us. My guest today on Dementia Matters is Dr. Suzanne Seeger, a neurologist with expertise in headache and memory disorders. She sees patients at the UW Health Neurology Memory Disorders Clinic, specializing in Alzheimer's disease and other dementias. In addition to her clinical work, Dr. Seeger is also a teacher and a coach at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health, where she mentors medical students in patient-centered education and skills development. Welcome, Dr. Seeger, to Dementia Matters. Thank you. On today's program, I want to focus on early-onset Alzheimer's disease, a condition more often seen by a neurologist. So can we start by having you define this condition for our listeners? Right. So early-onset Alzheimer's disease is diagnosed if the cognitive difficulties start before the age of 65. Most of the patients with early-onset Alzheimer's disease that I see in my clinic are in their 50s or early 60s, but the youngest was 39. Oh, well, so we can have people in 30s and 40s with true disease. That is correct. Wow. Okay, well, how is early-onset Alzheimer's disease different from late-onset? So in most cases, these patients will also present with memory complaints, just like the late-onset Alzheimer's patients, but there's also a substantial number of patients who have non-memory complaints. For example, some patients may have greater speech difficulties or language difficulties where they have a harder time expressing themselves, a harder time understanding what somebody is saying to them, a harder time repeating conversations or directions. So there's more variation, would you say, in early onset compared to someone I would see in my geriatric clinic? Absolutely. Another possible manifestation is this so-called visual-spatial impairment. So these patients appear like their glasses are not working, although they are. Their eyes are just fine, but their brain cannot interpret what they're seeing. So what they may experience is, for example, they're looking for something in a cluttered environment and they just can't find it. The classic example is they open the refrigerator looking for the milk and just can't see it, although it's right in front of them. Another example is they try to read and keep losing the line. They may trip over things, they may run into things and obstacles. And the most serious manifestation, as you can imagine, is getting in a car accident because they just didn't see the other car. Wow. You know, another question that people ask me is that do people with early onset progress faster than people with late onset? Unfortunately, that's often the case, despite the fact that younger patients, of course, are younger and healthier. But the disease course seems to be much more rapid. We cannot always predict who is going to progress rapidly and how fast, but the tendency is definitely there. I know we're still exploring the underlying mechanism for Alzheimer's disease in general, but do we think it's different in people with early onset versus late onset? So there are 
three known genetic mutations that are inherited in an autosomal dominant fashion, and they lead to fast accumulation of amyloid and different uh, processing of the amyloid. And when you say autosomal dominant, you mean that when it's passed on, you only need one version of it. That is correct. So somebody who has that gene will have Alzheimer's disease or will develop Alzheimer's disease for sure. And all their first-degree relatives have a 50% chance of developing Alzheimer's disease. So is early-onset Alzheimer's disease more difficult to diagnose than late-onset? In many cases, yes, it is more difficult to diagnose. I think there's often a tendency to just not believe that somebody who is that young could have dementia. And then... The families, the patients, we as physicians try to find all kinds of excuses why they are like this. Maybe they just got a divorce. Maybe they just had a new baby. Maybe their daughter is acting up at school. Their job responsibilities have changed. So we often try to find an excuse for why they are the way they are. But eventually the reality will sink in. And now on the flip side of the word excuse, there are other reasons, though, why a person could have cognitive impairment, especially in someone young. So can you give us other non-stress-related cognitive impairment causes? Right. So people who are under the age of 65, of course, are less likely to have a dementing illness, even if they have memory complaints. They may just have a harder time concentrating. In addition to all the stressors that we just talked about, they may be depressed, they may be anxious without getting treatment for it, they may have a sleep disorder, especially obstructive sleep apnea if untreated can lead to cognitive impairment. Um, They may have thyroid dysfunction, they may have vitamin deficiencies, and another very important one is medication side effects. So... Let's say somebody struggles with their sleep. They take sleep medication and then take more sleep medication and then they get something over the counter and eventually they will have a toxic mix of medications that make it harder to think and concentrate. So there's a whole bunch of variables that we have to consider, but for you in particular in early onset dementias, there's other various causes of brain disease. That is correct. So let's say we have ruled out everything else that could explain their cognitive difficulties, and we're sure now that they either have mild cognitive impairment or dementia. We need to consider non-Alzheimer's dementias as well. And still, under the age of 65, the most common cause of dementia is Alzheimer's disease, but the two runner-ups, so to speak, are vascular dementia and frontotemporal dementia. Can you explain for our listeners your definition of vascular dementia and then what you see in frontal temporal dementia? So vascular dementia is fairly easy to diagnose. This occurs if somebody has had a stroke or more than one stroke and develops cognitive difficulties. And then when we get a picture of the brain, an MRI, for example, we can see the strokes. That's a relatively straightforward diagnosis to make. When it comes to frontotemporal dementia, though, there are different manifestations. Some of them overlap with Alzheimer's disease again, so it can become more tricky. 
But one of the manifestations is language impairment. So again, these patients will have difficulties expressing themselves, understanding, repeating, and so on. And the other one is the behavioral variant frontotemporal dementia. And often these patients have changes in their personality. Oh, and not necessarily a memory complaint, but rather just that kind of change. Yeah, and you can imagine that this would be very hard to diagnose. And often these patients are first treated by a psychiatrist, or they're simply declared as a complainer or somebody who just doesn't want to work. So they may face those obstacles in their early course because people just don't believe that they have a dementing illness. And the behavioral variant frontotemporal dementia can have two different manifestations. There are those who become more apathetic, they lose interest in their hobbies or any kind of activity. And then there are those who become more disinhibited. They do socially inappropriate things. They may do reckless, careless actions, and they can sometimes result in substantial financial consequences or even legal consequences. And if the diagnosis is not made early on, there is a potential for all those complications. How common is it for someone under the age of 65 to have a memory or a thinking complaint? Any memory or thinking complaint, it's pretty common. The more we all hear about Alzheimer's disease, the more we become afraid of it. So if we just walk into a room and forget why we're there, or if we can't find our key, we think, oh my God, do I have Alzheimer's disease? Whereas if our kids do that, we just say, well, you're just not paying attention. So it's very common that people complain about memory. But um, people who have definite disease as an underlying cause are probably a minority. Mm. And what is the most common complaint in your clinic? The ones that I just mentioned, right? Okay. I walk in a room, can't remember why, if I lose my key, I forgot a doctor's appointment. And quite frankly, that's part of normal life, especially in middle age, because that's a time in our life that can be quite stressful. Our parents are getting older, they need more help, they may have dementia. Our kids are becoming teenagers, which is a whole different challenge on top of it. Life becomes harder. Usually people in middle age have more responsibilities at work. So life is just much harder. And that by itself can interfere with sleep, with the ability to care for yourself, the ability to really make sure you get enough sleep and enough exercise. So there can be multiple factors making people more forgetful and inattentive. And so given all of these multiple factors, you know, how do you determine whether a condition is due to dementia or due to something else like these other factors? What tools do you have? So the most important tool is just talking to the patient and their family. So one really needs to gather a lot of information from the patient, from their family members, from others who know them well. So we take a very thorough history, again, emphasizing their stage in their life, their work situation, their lifestyle. Other tools are the physical exam. We need to do a good physical exam, a good neurological exam. And then in our clinic, of course, we perform the so-called memory testing, 
which, as you know, is more than just memory testing. We test multiple cognitive functions. And that often gives us a clue as to what's going on. And I appreciate you initially starting off by saying it's also the report from the family. So often people think, okay, this is my experience, so I'm going to tell you, and that should be enough. But we actually need to get input from those that know the person the best. That is correct. And that is not always easy. If you meet with a patient and his or her spouse in clinic, often the spouse doesn't feel free to talk about it. It can be a little bit embarrassing. They might be a little bit more tongue-tied. So we try to interview them in separate rooms so everybody can speak their mind. Now, patients with early-onset dementia are faced with special circumstances that patients in my clinic in the late-onset dementias don't typically encounter. So putting the disease itself to the side, what kinds of issues do you see in your clinic? So there can be multiple issues. Let's start with work. Some of them may still be working. They may even be the main breadwinner or the sole breadwinner. They may be the one who carry the insurance, so the family depends on them still working. But the workplace may not be the right place for them anymore. Some of them, by the time they see us, have already made mistakes at work. They've already been disciplined. They've already been demoted. They may even have been fired already. So the loss of a job or the threat of losing a job is always there, and that's one of the biggest issues we have to face. The other thing is kids. So some of them may still have young kids at home, and the role of the parent changes. So somebody who is a father and develops dementia may just not be like other fathers anymore, and it's tough for those kids. They find different ways to grieve. Some of them may grieve, but some of them start acting up. They become more difficult. They drop their grades at school. So that's a factor. Of course, the other spouse struggles with holding on to their own job while caring for the patient with dementia. So that is sometimes a very, very difficult social situation. It almost feels overwhelming. And so what do you recommend to people or where do people go for help? So in our clinic and in your clinic, of course, we're blessed with a very, very good social worker. And social workers in memory clinics usually know a lot about resources in the areas, about caregiver organizations, home care agencies. They can help with applications for disability, which eventually is going to be something that happens. Um, So there's definitely help out there. Also, the caregiver or future caregiver needs to learn a lot about the disease. So we usually encourage early on to attend seminars classes, read things online, joining caregiver support support groups, and so on, because this is so important to know what's coming and to plan ahead. People are not alone, right? And unfortunately, there are other people in similar situations, and so they shouldn't try to do this alone. They should really reach out to the community, to the healthcare system to get more information and training. I like the way you said that. Absolutely. And they should also reach out to family members and friends. 
And that's a situation where you find out pretty quickly who your real friends are. Now, what things should patients with early onset Alzheimer's be doing as far as legal matters in healthcare? Because you brought that up. Should they be going to an attorney, or is this something the social worker would be able to handle? Well, the answer is both. There, at the minimum, there should be a healthcare power of attorney and a financial power of attorney, and you can do those forms on your own at home. The signature, though, has to be witnessed. It does not have to be notarized, and the witness cannot be a healthcare provider or a family member. So ideally, this would be witnessed in the clinic by the social worker or it would be witnessed by somebody at the bank. And that's usually a service that's available for free. An attorney costs money, of course. But if the family needs to work on a will, it's probably better to get an attorney involved. And then when it comes to working, as you mentioned, I know it's a case-by-case basis, but would you say for some people you could continue to work at least for a short while, or should everyone who gets diagnosis stop working? It really depends on how far advanced the diagnosis is or the disease is. It depends on what kind of work they're doing, and it depends on how supportive the employer is. I have seen employers who are incredibly supportive and allow this person to stay on staff for as long as possible, even if their responsibilities change and at the end they may not contribute much anymore, but at least they have a home in terms of their work and their relationship with coworkers. But we have to be realistic that in many jobs, in most jobs, a mistake can either be very costly or can be dangerous for the patient or for coworkers. So it really depends what the job is, and it's better to stop working rather than being fired. And in addition to those obstacles for people with early onset dementia, spouses and other family members may face their own challenges. So what do you tell family members after you give this diagnosis? So... When I give the diagnosis, I acknowledge that it's going to be a shock for the patient, for the family. There's no way around it. It's going to be a sad day. And I tell them it's okay to grieve. But the next thing I tell them is that we're there for them. So there's definitely resources out there, and we are there for them. But they do need to plan ahead and unless there are other family members who can provide care when the spouse is at work, sometimes, unfortunately, it means that the spouse will either have to cut back on their work hours or even stop working for a period of time, go on medical leave, and so on. There are adult daycare centers, so sometimes that helps so that the spouse can still go to work and then drop off their loved one and pick them up after work. So that's definitely an option for a period of time. Now, planning is key, and I guess switching from the patient to the family member, because early onset has a genetic component, do family members often ask, one, for a blood test for the patient, or two, if they should get a blood test to see if they have this gene? 
So we often have that conversation, um, but it's a difficult conversation to have. For the patient, it's really not that important to know. They already have the disease. It might be important to know if they're planning on enrolling in a clinical trial specifically for familial Alzheimer's disease. But the vast majority of patients choose not to have the test. I also talk to their first-degree relatives, their siblings or their adult children about it, and I tell them that if the genetic test is positive, you will know with 100% certainty that you will get early onset Alzheimer's disease, and you really have to think about what you're going to do with that information. It's going to be very tough to deal with it. And I would say the vast majority of relatives choose not to go ahead with the testing because we don't really have any treatment. And that's important to know because for late onset, there's a genetic component, but it's merely a risk factor. If you have it, it doesn't mean you're getting the disease. So there is a difference between what we're talking about with early onset and with late onset. That is correct. For our audience members who have a loved one with early onset Alzheimer's disease, What have you learned in your experience that you want them to know? I think the most important thing to realize early on is, and we said that before, you're not alone. There's help out there, but you do need to plan ahead. I've unfortunately often seen that family members start to try to cope by just ignoring the facts for a while, but then when their loved one reaches the later stages of dementia and cannot be left alone anymore or have some behavioral manifestation, it suddenly turns into a crisis. Once you have a crisis, it's very hard to fix things. So we need to plan way ahead to make sure that things go smoothly and that we progress in Um, in the caregiver role and also in the way care is provided. In some cases, patients with early onset Alzheimer's disease will have to be placed into a memory care unit, and we cannot do this overnight. That needs to be planned ahead. And then would you also say that by being prepared, you are allowing for a better quality of life because you're avoiding crisis moments. You're avoiding these very stressful times later on in the disease. Absolutely. And one other important factor to consider is that, yes, we want to provide quality of life for the patient who is affected with Alzheimer's disease. We want to maintain their dignity, but we also need to make sure that they're safe. And sometimes it's very hard to keep them safe and maintain their dignity at the same time. And it's a big struggle for families to sort this out and make sure that um, the affected patient doesn't get treated like a child. These are not easy issues, which I believe is why it's so important that people have neurologists like yourself and geriatricians to go to to help answer some of these questions. So with that, I'd like to thank you for being on Dementia Matters, and we hope to have you on in the future. Thank you very much. It was my pleasure. 
Dementia Matters is brought to you by the Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center. The Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center combines academic, clinical, and research expertise from the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health and the Geriatric Research Education and Clinical Center of the William S. Middleton Memorial Veterans Hospital in Madison, Wisconsin. It receives funding from private, university, state, and national sources, including a grant from the National Institutes of Health for Alzheimer's Disease Centers. This episode was produced by Rebecca Wazaleski and edited by Bashir Adin. Our musical jingle is Cases to Rest by Blue Dot Sessions. Check out our website at adrc.wisc.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook. If you have any questions or comments, email us at dementiamatters at medicine.wisc.edu. Thanks for listening.